0: It's so good to be here and to uh, be back with you all and to see some uh, familiar faces and to see some uh, new faces. Um, Like Miles said, my name is uh, Andy, and I'm here with my wife, Becca. We uh, normally have the uh, joy of serving and worshiping at Gospel City Church in uh, Kuala Lumpur, but we are um, happy to be with you all this morning and uh, really happy uh, that Michael asked me to come back and speak in Matthew and not another text in Isaiah. (laughs) Uh. But uh, I'm excited to um, be here as you guys uh, open this sermon series on uh, Matthew. And uh, because you all are taking a break from Isaiah, um, I will spend a little more time introducing the book of Matthew and introducing the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to look at the Beatitudes from more of a 30,000-foot overview. And um, one thing that I think we really get to see is when we look at these as a unit, Uh, You know, Jesus really knew what he was doing as far as the literary styling and the way that he composed these together. And sometimes when we look at them as individual lines, what he was trying to do with these as a unit. So this morning, we're going to look at them as a unit, and we're going to be asking three questions to guide our time. Who is the audience of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? What does it mean to be blessed? And then what is the nature of the Beatitudes? So these are the three questions that are going to guide our time, looking at the audience, the meaning of blessing, and the nature of the Beatitudes. And then we'll consider how we can apply them to ourselves this morning. Let's go ahead and read the text for us one more time, just because it is such a rich text. And since we just read it in the ESV, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it in the CSB just to continue to try to tease out some of these nuances and the rich. Uh, language that Jesus uses here. So I'm going to go ahead and read back from uh, 5.1 through to verse 12 in the CSB. So you all can listen along or follow along on your phones. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you have preserved it for us and kept it for us, so that we in Kuala Lumpur in 2023 come to this word and see how it applies to our lives. God, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would allow the text through the Holy Spirit to live and be real for us this morning. Give us wisdom and how to apply it. God, I pray that we would be comforted and encouraged and leave here loving the gospel and loving you more as a result of this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as we begin, let me take a moment just to introduce Matthew and to get our mindsets thinking about Matthew. So Matthew is the first book in our New Testament, the first gospel we see. It wasn't necessarily the first gospel that was written chronologically, but that is how we have it ordered. And it was officially anonymous. When we look at the first chapter, it wasn't like, hey, this is Matthew who's writing this. It was just this uh, book but since the time of the early church, it has been attributed to Jesus' disciple of Matthew. And so uh, I think you know, we're pretty good to say that this was written by Matthew. That's why it is, has his name. One commentator explains the meaning of the book this way: Matthew's purpose for writing to followers of Jesus towards the end of the first century is to portray Jesus as God's authorized Messiah who teaches and enacts the reign of God and who ushers in the kingdom through his self-giving ministry and death. This means that in Matthew, Jesus is shown to be the powerful Messiah who carries God's authority to bring about the kingdom of God, as well as one who has authority to teach and explain the meaning of the word of God. And now during this section of the Sermon on the Mount and what we're going to be focusing on this morning and the Beatitudes, we're going to be focusing on this second aspect, the teaching aspect of Jesus. And as we'll momentarily turn there, I think it's important to understand that what Mark's portraying is that the Jesus who teaches and the Jesus who does mighty works are one and the same. We cannot say we love Jesus, we think he's this great philosopher, but I don't really like that raising from the dead and healing stuff. Or We can't say, yeah, I love you know these stories about exorcism, and I love these stories about healing blind people, but ah, these teachings on the kingdom and all this stuff, that seems whack. I can't do that, right? No, what Matthew is presenting here is that Jesus the teacher and Jesus the mighty miracle worker are one in the same. To accept one is to accept both. They are the same person. Turning to the Sermon on the Mount, one scholar wrote that the Sermon on the Mount clearly portrays Jesus as the new Moses. Moses. Jesus' ascent up the mountain, pictures back to Moses' ascent up to Mount Sinai. As in the Old Testament, mountains in Matthew are places of divine revelation. And the blessing pronounced by Jesus here in the Beatitudes recalls Moses' blessing back to Israel. The Beatitudes identify Jesus' disciples as the new true spiritual Israel on whom God's blessings would rest. In other words, as Jesus is blessing his followers here, there's major implications for the way we consider the biblical narrative of salvation and God's people. And so that's just a little primer to get us thinking through the book of Matthew. We could go into this in a lot more detail, but there's so much richness to see in the text this morning, the Beatitudes. So the first question that we have this morning is, who is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes? The question helps us to understand how to interpret and apply the text for us today, right? We understand this and we do this um, in our lives every day, even without considering. Uh, If we read a text message or if we read an email and it doesn't seem like it's meant for us, this happened to me recently, I'll message back, "Um, I don't think this is for me, right? Because if if we get a message that we don't understand, oftentimes it may not be for us. And so understanding who the audience is helps us understand how to interpret and then apply the message. Now we see two different audiences mapped out in Matthew 5, 1 to 2. Matthew writes that Jesus saw the crowds, and then he went up the mountains. The disciples came to him, and Jesus taught them. The primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is the disciples. The disciples came up the mount after Jesus went up there, and Jesus taught them. However, there's a secondary audience. And Piper makes this point clear by helping us flip towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28. There we see that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. The disciples are the primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, but the crowds are present for hear and are astonished by the teachings of Jesus. So the first question we ask was, who is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes? And from looking at Matthew 5, 1-2, and 7:28, we see that the primary audience is the disciples, but there's also a secondary audience. Jesus knows the crowds are there, and he's intending for them to hear that. And all of this is going to come back a little later. once we go through the text and make a little more sense. But just as we're coming to the outset... Jesus' primary audience, the primary people he's speaking to here, is the disciples. That's going to help us understand what he wants us to do with these beatitudes and what it means to be blessed, right? But the crowds are also here, these that are not following Jesus as disciples, and they're also meant to gain and understand something from this. The next question that we're going to ask this morning is, what does it mean to be blessed? I don't know about you, but... I don't use blessed a whole lot in my vocabulary day to day, but it's used a lot in the Bible. And perhaps one of the greatest questions we may have when turning to the Beatitudes is we see the word blessed nine times, and we're like, what in the world does that mean, right? We have this shallow understanding. I know a few years back, hashtag blessed was like this (laughs) trending thing, and it could mean like You went to a restaurant, you went to the Mamak, and they accidentally gave you two rotis when you paid for one. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. That's not quite what Jesus is getting at here, right? Our understanding of blessed, and it is still a blessing, (laughs) sure, Bethany. (laughs) But it's not quite what we're getting at. Um, And so the phrase blessed that we're thinking about here can be translated as happy or happiness. But I think even then, our emotional understanding of happiness doesn't quite reach the depth of what the original language was trying to communicate. Our happiness oftentimes is circumstantial and transient. Think about we get a good grade, we get a raise at work, there's no traffic on the commute, but then an accident comes and we're stuck in jam on the mechs for 45 minutes, or you just got good news at work, and then your text message goes off, and there's bad news. All of a sudden, the happiness that we thought could never go away is zapped from us. Our happiness in our emotional life is transient. It is circumstantial, and so that doesn't fully capture what Jesus is communicating here. When Jesus is talking about blessed or happiness here, he's not saying that these people are rarely or circumstantially happy or temporarily or circumstantially blessed. John Stott says it this way. He says, happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment. He is declaring not what they may feel like, but what God thinks of them and what on that account they are. They are blessed. This blessing is not the way they feel, but it's rather what God looks at them and says, you're blessed. This blessing is defined then by the end of the verse. So in verse 3, we see the result of this blessing is having the kingdom of God. In verse 4, we see the result of this blessing is comfort. Verse 5, to inherit the earth, and so on and so forth. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it supersedes our transitory and circumstantial understanding of emotions today. To be blessed is to be declared by God to receive such things as the kingdom of heaven, as comfort, as mercy, as seeing God, as being called sons and daughters of God. Each verse shares a different result of blessing. The kingdom of heaven, comfort, mercy, but together they paint a holistic picture of one who is blessed. These are not eight different characters of eight different people that are blessed. We see that by the literary structure. If you notice verse 3, which is what we see as the first beatitude, and verse 10, which we see as the final beatitude, they both end by saying theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the bookend. And because of and and then the transition from the their language to the you language, we see verses eleven and twelve on the similar subject of persecution to be further um, explaining verse ten. But these eight beatitudes, they're bookended by this understanding of theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and in between that, we see that the people receive comfort, they inherit the earth, they're satisfied, they receive mercy, see God, become sons of God. The meaning of blessing is very deep in this passage. It comes not from our circumstances, it comes not from our actions, it comes from the declaration of God. These people are blessed because God thinks them and declares them to be blessed. And that leads us into our next and third question this morning, What is the nature of the Beatitudes? So I want us to try an activity. I want to test out our grammar skills this morning. Very simple, just understanding the difference between present and future tense, okay? So we have eight reward statements or eight blessing statements. I'm going to read them, and for the ones that are present, as in this person is currently experiencing this blessing, I want you to raise your right hand. If it is future, as in this person will receive this blessing, raise your left hand. No grade at the end, just uh, for us to kind of be active listeners and think through these things, okay? So if it's present, right hand. If it's future, left hand. We all got it? Okay. So there is the kingdom of God. Yeah, right hand. Is. They, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Yeah. So how do we do? Pretty good? (laughs) Eight for eight, hopefully. So the reason I do this is not to give a pop quiz on Sunday morning, but I hope we saw a pattern. Just like the third verse and the tenth verse have the kingdom of heaven as the blessing, they also are the only two that are present. As in, these people are blessed to currently have the kingdom of God. The first and last communicate present blessing. Whereas verses 4 through 9, Beatitudes 2 through 7, communicate a future state of blessing. They shall or they will be comforted. They shall or they will have mercy. And this idea is really important for us to understand not only about the Beatitudes, but the Christian life in general. The Bible speaks of this tension of the present and the future. What we have now in Christ compared to what we will have one day in glory and eternity. Perhaps you've heard this concept explained as the already but not yet. And essentially what it means is that The benefits we have of following Jesus, we're able to enjoy in the present, but there are so much more waiting for us in eternity, right? Perhaps this is most clearly seen in passages such as Romans 8. Romans 8 teaches us that today, where we are, we are forgiven of sins. There is no condemnation. We have the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. But then we see that us, along with creation, are groaning and looking towards the time that we see glory with Christ we're justified and forgiven of sins and being sanctified to be like Christ but we long for the day that we will be glorified with him in heaven there will be no sin no crying no death today we already have life in Christ but we do not yet have the eternity There will be no sin weeping and death Okay, so what does that mean for the Beatitudes? How does that help us to interpret and understand them, that they have this already but not yet nature? What does that mean for us? Well, it helps us to understand them also by looking at the primary audience. The primary audience was the disciples. And the fact that these blessed people are already in the kingdom of God, it means that these Beatitudes are not an ethical standard to strive for in order to receive salvation. Those who are in Christ have a present assurance of their status in the kingdom of God. Remember the first question. The primary audience of the Beatitudes is disciples. Meaning that those who are hearing these are all followers of Christ. Now upon reading the Beatitudes, some have speculated that this is a list of actions to do in order to elicit a reward. In order to... To receive mercy, you must show good mercy. If you don't show good mercy to others, God will not show mercy on you. But this is missing the mark of that present status that we see in verses three through 10. Scott, uh, Stott again helps us to clarify this misconception. He says, "The very first beatitude proclaims salvation not by. God, for it pledges that the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. That is the people who are so spiritually poverty-stricken that they have nothing in the way of merit to offer. That's who Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is for. It's for the people that have to come to Jesus with empty hands and say, I've got nothing. I'm poor in spirit. Jesus says, great. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Stock continues and shares that we need to see the Sermon of the Mount as a new kind of law. This new law has two purposes. It shows the non-Christian that he cannot please God by himself and so directs him to Christ to be justified, to receive forgiveness of sins. But secondly, it shows the Christian who has already been forgiven of sins how to live so as to please God. The Puritans summarize it even more concisely than this says the law sends us to Christ for forgiveness, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. That's what Jesus is showing us here. It's a new law that for the disciples was meant to send them to Christ to be and for the crowd, send them to Christ to receive forgiveness of sins. As we said in the beginning, the sermon had two audiences, and in that way, this New law, which Jesus was bringing about in the sermon, had two applications. One, to point those who are away from Christ to Christ, and two, to point those in Christ back to Christ for growth to be like Him. For the disciples, then, these Beatitudes would have been a comfort. They give assurance to the disciples of their salvation and their place in the kingdom of heaven today, in the present. And they give hope for the day to come when they will receive comfort, when they will receive the fullness of mercy, they will receive the ability to see God and be with God. You know, for the crowds, it likely would have drawn multiple responses. We know as much from Matthew 7, 28 that they were astonished, right? But astonishment can come in multiple forms, right? It can be astonished that, ah, this is some sideshow that I can go watch on Sunday morning to entertain me until all the good restaurants open? Or this is an astonishment that thinks this is worth giving my life for? But what about us, right? How does this strike us as we sit here this morning? How does this apply to us this morning? Well, for those of us who are in Christ, I believe the first thing which the Beatitudes should do is evoke joy. As we currently sit in the first floor of Wisma Chinese Chamber, if you are in Christ, yours is the kingdom of heaven right now. How remarkable is that? Yours is the kingdom of heaven right now. We rejoice in the present blessing and rejoice over what we will receive in the future because of Christ. We were poor in spirit. It's not because of us. We came to Jesus saying, I got nothing. He's like, come on in. That's the people that belong in my kingdom. And the present state of being in Christ is assurance that Christ, by the power of the Spirit, will bring about the character stated in verses 4 through 9. If you are in Christ because you are poor in spirit, then the spirit will sanctify you in Christ's image to become meek, become merciful, to mourn and have your heart broken for the things that break God's heart and that mourn God, to become pure in heart, to become peacemakers. Brother, sister, rejoice today. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Well, maybe you're here this morning, you're in Christ, but you're tired. You're feeling worn out. You're feeling meek, and you don't want to wait for the comfort, right? Maybe you're spent of mercy, and you want mercy now. Though the fullness of comfort, the fullness of God's mercy the fullness of seeing God in the rest will not be experienced until eternity in Christ. I believe the Bible communicates already not yet with these as well. In other words, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, wow, child, uh, it looks like you need comfort. Tough luck. Wait until you're in heaven. no. <laughs> Just a few chapters later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 11, Jesus extends an invitation for the wearied and the burdened to come to him. In that very passage, Jesus identifies himself as meek and as gentle, using language reminiscent of the Beatitudes. If you are in Christ and you're gritting and bearing it, waiting for heaven to come so that you can receive comfort and mercy, I pray that you would run to Christ today. His heart is for you now. His heart is for you today. And He wants to comfort you now, today. Run to Him for comfort and mercy. It's not the fullness of comfort and mercy. That's coming. But Christ calls you to Him now. He wants to be with you now. And another beauty of this assurance in the kingdom of heaven, it means that Jesus will hold you and cling you until the day you see him in eternity. Being presently in the kingdom of heaven means that Jesus will hold you fast and cling on to you until the day that you reach him in eternity. you are here this morning and you're not in Christ. You're not in the kingdom of heaven, or at least you don't feel like you are. Maybe you say, "Ah, that's not me. Jesus could never love me. Jesus could never accept me into his kingdom. Jesus could never make me meek and merciful. Look at the number 1 criterion Jesus identifies for coming to him in Matthew 5:3. Poor in spirit. The number one thing you need to do to come to him for salvation is the realization that you can't forgive your sins alone and that you need help. That's his specialty. Jesus specializes in the case of the unforgiving person. And that's all of us, right? None of us could forgive ourselves. None of us could wash away our sins. None of us could wipe away our sins. In the Beatitudes, Jesus begins to establish a new law of his kingdom. These Beatitudes give assurance of blessing, both current and and future to Jesus' his followers. It provides an invitation for the poor in spirit to come empty-handed and receive mercy. Those who come to Jesus empty-handed, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who come to Jesus empty-handed, he will hold fast and never cast out until they see him in heaven. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for these truths. I thank you that today, where we sit and stand, if we are in you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. God, for those of us who came in this morning not knowing you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourselves through the realization that they have to bring nothing but empty hands. That's who you love, that's your specialty. Drawing those who cannot help themselves. God, I thank you for this truth. Christ, thank you for coming, that we may have life in you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.